0: We are here in the 11 FS offices in London for episode 114 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you Santander settles a big Ethereum bond, Vitalik Buterin does some words and the latest from Europe. Apparently, Libra is not very welcome. All this and much, much more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and uh, I'm joined by the wonderful returning guest, Noel Itcherson, Director of Research at Coindesk. Noel, how are you today?
1: I'm fine, thank you, Simon. Great to be here with you. How are you today?
0: I'm really, really well, uh, yeah, uh, exhausted, flat out, but enjoying all of that process. Uh, Actually,
1: yeah, funny to say about exhausted. it's um I've been on the road now for a couple of weeks and running from meeting to meeting as you know, you do this too. it yeah. does get really exhausting. but at yeah. the same time it's really invigorating, don't you find because of the conversations you're yes. having. And that's one of the things I most appreciate about this sector and so a big shout out to all of you listening who work in this it's it's populated by people who are curious about big things.
0: Mm-hmm. And ultra-smart people.
1: And people who know how to self-teach themselves things they don't fully understand and, and listen and inquire. and Anyway, so yeah, exhausted but invigorated at the they're same time. They're also really
0: attractive, especially if they download this podcast. And they're going to be really <laughs> successful if they download the podcast <laughs> well, and subscribe. And
1: especially if they leave a good rating, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: that's the one. All right, so the first story this week comes from Reuters, but it could have come from just about any outlet. Uh, this is about France and Germany agreeing to block Facebook's Libra. In a joint statement, the two governments affirmed that no private entity can claim monetary power, which is inherent to the sovereignty of nations. And the French finance minister Bruno Le Maire said on Thursday that Facebook's new cryptocurrency would not be allowed to operate in Europe, whilst concerns persist about sovereignty and persistent financial risks. Uh, This is pretty strongly worded stuff coming out of um, both ministers from France and Germany, Noel. It seems to me like there's a whole bunch of reasons why Facebook hasn't uh, endeared itself to regulators with this one. Um, Where do you see the balance of uh, concern is here from the regulatory community?
1: Well, strong words is not exactly something that European regulators, especially on the finance side, seem to be lacking recently. This is par for the course on a whole lot of things. What what I think is fascinating here is that they are putting their foot down and saying that this will not be used as money within our borders. And that is defining it as money. And this is a crypto token. Well, yeah, that's up for debate, obviously. But let's just package it as a crypto token, as Facebook has tried to do. That is being labeled as money by financial regulators. And we're not sure that cryptocurrency is technically that yet. So this is bringing that conversation forward.
0: It, it brings it back around in an interesting way, because money was the uh, unit of account, medium of exchange, and store of value. And uh, when people looked at Bitcoin, they said, unit of account, yes store of value? Yes, maybe, but could it be too volatile? Um, And medium of exchange, probably too slow to be used, probably not widely adopted to be used on a day-to-day basis, could change in the future. Um, And and it was Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, that said this, and and many, many others. Um, But It's interesting that people look at Libra, which is potentially backed by a basket of assets, Mm -hmm. um, which could move from anybody with a Facebook account and or Facebook uh, Libra, sorry, a Libra compatible wallet um, that's, that's, I guess, inspired by and open sourced by Facebook to be fair to their positioning could move this value between each other in near instantaneous, near real time, to a consumer that looks and feels like money, if not e-money. It
1: does, but it could also be considered a token. And is a token money? In which case, are we going to uh, consider Starbucks tokens money? Are we going to consider any other kind of exchange token money going forward? That's a different conversation.
0: I think it is, but it's driven by the risk. So from a regulatory perspective, am I worried that people are going to be using, 2 billion people are going to use Starbucks tokens for uh, cash-like transactions at distance globally without any sort of regulatory control over that? Probably not. Am I worried that that could happen with Libra? absolutely so there's this interesting question about the the sovereignty piece on, mm. on the one side i think there is a real concern that um are central banks essentially ceding sovereignty over their ability to manage their economy if there is this other currency that is bigger and more widely adopted uh, than some of the central bank currencies, um, there's, there's definitely some pushback there.
1: It's curious that they do see this as a threat enough to be able to enough to get out in public and use these strong words. The threat would come from the substitution effect—people using Libra instead of the euro. But again, that's a pretty bold claim.
0: Mm-hmm. And it seems very early for that. But I think the fear of Facebook is big enough and ugly enough to make that happen with its two billion users. Um, so. Uh, there's that side of it, and and it's interesting. Um, what scares you about Libra probably says more about you than it does about Libra, yes. um, because what scares the uh, finance ministers is loss of control over currencies. What probably scares most of the people I speak to is loss of further loss of control over their own individual data and. Freedom and facebook's creeping ability to see into everything we do um, different um, policymakers and regulators that may look after financial crime are more worried about the potential financial crime risks and how they would be managed and uh, you know what would happen if Libra was suddenly used by criminals and how would we know that this wasn't being used by criminals, et etc, et etc so probably you know people are looking at this with their own lens uh, and it's interesting to see uh, who the person saying the thing is. Tends to colour what they're saying.
1: And there's a lot. To unpack in the statements that we're seeing from the regulators, increasingly I am hearing Facebook in the conversations more than Libra. In other words, it seems that Facebook is the problem, not Libra, and that does tie into the whole trend towards privacy. And the increasing regulation we're probably going to see on that. And Will that complicate the approvals of Libra or not?
0: And historically, of course, we are sitting in the spectre of post-Cambridge Analytica. Um, People are still worried about the whole fake news and or uh, kind of Future of democracy and election, quote unquote rigging, in air quotes, and and what can happen with the persuadables, etc.
1: And the conversations are going to get even more interesting because many do believe that Libra could be presented as a security. It is, after all, based on a basket of value uh, artificially constructed. And the fact that there's no profit, it's a stable coin, does not mean it's not a security. Some stable coins probably will end up being considered as such. So here we have a security that is also being considered money, and that is a new conversation.
0: It's interesting that um, Libra announced some time ago that they'd look to a payments uh, license from, uh, I believe it's FINMA and Switzerland. Switzerland, But the the Swiss FINMA response has been sort of, yes, okay, you could follow the process to do that, but we have the same concerns every other regulator has around the world. It seems quite often when asked about a regulatory position, the Libra and Facebook people tend to answer, the answer is this jurisdiction in Switzerland. And the Swiss go, are you sure? Um, We've got the same concerns as our international colleagues.
1: But concerns about Facebook more than Libra.
0: I think concerns about uh, Facebook are behind a lot of the other serious questions around monetary sovereignty as being one piece, but the second piece around uh, what are you going to do about transaction monitoring and AML, uh, what are you going to do around all of the questions that people asked about um, cryptocurrencies more broadly, uh, which we've seen evolve towards a, a... picture of exchanges. And those exchange endpoints now will do things like know your customer, which is why if you sign up for a lot of fiat crypto exchanges, they ask you for things like your passport or driver's license, utility bills, to figure out that you are who you say you are. And then once they've gone, aha, that is in fact Noelle, she can take her cash and get Bitcoin at this place. We understand the system better. If in fact, we see this Bitcoin wallet Performing what we think is suspicious in the Bitcoin network, we can go find out actually that was at Coinbase and who, and then we can go to Coinbase and ask them who it was underneath it. Um, Libra's answer, I think, has been that, well, they would work in the same way that Libra tokens would be sold through exchanges. But from a user experience standpoint, so now I've got to download my Calibra wallet and now I've also got to have an account at an exchange. And so I've got to take my regular cash, I've got to take that to an exchange. And then that goes into my Libra wallet. That's kind of janky from a user experience standpoint.
1: Not to mention the identity management part of it. And one Especially thing to, if you have to go
0: after emerging markets.
1: <laughs> totally. And how do you even prove your identity yes. in many of these places? And one thing to bear in mind is David Marcus has publicly said that Libra will not launch and without regulatory approval.
0: Yeah. So this story was picked up um, in a number of articles. But it's actually a tweet storm that David put out, wasn't it, where there's also the uh, Bertrand Perez, Director General at the Labour Association, said the token will uh, appear in the second half of 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting they're being quite bullish on timeline.
1: Yes, and, you know, and they need to make these statements to reassure their backers and not to mention their community that this is going to go ahead anyway. But if indeed it is going to wait for regulatory approval, it could be a very long wait. Uh,
0: but Perez is confident that all regulatory difficulties could be solved by the launch, saying this sh- the year we've taken prior to release will allow us to iron out all the problems.
1: Uh-huh that's always gone smoothly, right? I, and, I, I see
0: techies that haven't met regulators exactly. before.
1: <laughs> it's, it's a fair point, very good point. But it does make us wonder, first of all, if it ends up launching, and there's a big if, What will it look like? Probably not what it was originally presented as. I think it's going to change shape
0: dramatically. David Marcus said on Twitter that Libra is simply designed to be a better payment network system running on top of existing currencies. Therefore, the sovereignty issue, uh, these are my words, the sovereignty issue is less pressing because, quote, uh, there's no new money creation, which will strictly remain the province of sovereign nations. But to your point earlier, the replacement effect means even if it's based on currencies uh, behind the scenes, if this is the thing that most people are using, it is de facto um, Mm. sort of acting as a currency.
1: Uh, One thing uh, that I'm hearing quite a lot, people say, yes, Libra will launch and it will be the most... seminal thing, most important thing to have happened to crypto in a very long time. I don't think it needs to launch for it to be that. It already is one of the most important announcements in crypto, whether it launches or not. Mm-hmm. So many people, I've spoken to many companies who tell me that they are getting unprecedented inbound interest from enterprises since the launch, not necessarily trying to replicate the business model, but interested, trying to find out more, wondering, should they be issuing a coin? And we are indeed starting to see that. segue to the next point.
0: Which, yeah, <laughs> well, so the length point here, um, story comes from uh, the wonderful Coindesk, of course. Of course. Um, Deutsche Bank have joined JP Morgan's Crypto Payments Network. Um, This is the... Uh, interbank Information Network, which has 320 banks in it now. Um, this is an information network, not a payment network. However, it does use uh, Quorum and employs JPM coin behind the scenes in for some of the banks, but not all of them. So the goal of the Interbank Information Network is to, essentially in the event of a payments failure, banks typically pick up the phone and go, what went wrong? Where did that break? Or they start emailing each other.
1: That's what SWIFT does,
0: basically. Uh, yes, although SWIFT Um, tends to send you a message about the payment. It's like, here's my payment instruction, please do this thing. Mm. Um, But then inside of a bank, you've basically got this sort of uh, giant pinball machine of process where where a payment tries to flow through all of these different departments in a bank, and any point of that can break. And the Swift messaging service, which serves 10,000 plus banks, isn't nuanced enough to know every bit of which... The inside of every bank and where it's failed inside of every bank. So typically, what happens is somebody at one bank picks up the phone to the person at the other bank and goes, It's broken here. But of course, they're in different time zones. They don't always know who to call, which department of which bank do I call? And actually, part of the reason sometimes about 4% of payments just fail. Um, and sometimes payments just you know, never get to where they were intended. And the only way that the sending bank knows that the payment hasn't got to the receiving bank, is the customer calls up and goes, where's my money? Hmm. Um, So the interbank information network is designed to be a way in which banks can communicate about, this is where I'm at beneath the surface. This is where it's stuck for me. I need this information from you.
1: And that's a fascinating facet of money that we tend to overlook. I mean, money actually isn't recognized without information behind it. I mean, and some some philosophers will tell you that money is information. Indeed. A type of information, true, Uh, with certain guarantees behind it, but it Without information, it does not exist.
0: To quote Dave Birch, money is memory, um, which which are memory of value. Um, The Interbank Information Network, of course, built on Quora, but also Quora, uh, Quora, I'm sorry, is also behind JPM Coin. JPM Coin, I would imagine, has gotten significant amounts of interest uh, since the uh, launch of, uh, of Libra. Uh, But also on Coindesk, Wells Fargo are now going to put um, uh, dollar-linked stablecoins for international settlement together. It's dubbed Wells Fargo Digital Cash. And they're seeing that growing demand to further reduce friction regarding traditional borders. And it's, again, sort of seeing an example where uh, that uh, Libra is doing one thing, stablecoins are out there. Then you've got this third position, which is the traditional banks are now looking at tokens in in a completely different way.
1: Yes, banks, and we'll probably start to see corporates come in with this as well, because the idea of money, thanks to Libra, but thanks to Bitcoin, I mean, it started the conversation, mm-hmm. is shifting.
0: It really, really is. Um, the pilot is uh, for this one is slated next year, but it's starting with transfers of U.S. dollars and is expected to expand into other currencies. Um, and it aims to be reach uh, Wells Fargo branches worldwide. Um, much like how you can take um, US dollar tokens in, in the world of crypto and they settle, in theory, instantaneously around the world. If banks could be in that position, there's an argument that they have a defensibility against something like Libra. Um, but in a foot race, it's going to be interesting to see who wins with the regulators because I think that's where the blocker may be more so than on the pure tech side. Uh, we're also seeing some of the central banks like PBOC and other um, start to really, really investigate this space.
1: As, and when you take into account, well, one, the power that the financial sector has in, within the regulatory community, the influence that they have, but also the possibility of new type of business models emerging on the communities that you build through the generation of a, com, of a payment ecosystem. Mm-hmm. The tokens, tokens, as you know, generate a whole lot of ancillary activities. It's not just about the payment. And when you bring the programmability feature into these new kind of tokens. I it's think- going to get exciting. I, I don't even, I have no idea what it's going to look like. Programmable but we know-
0: money is yes. phenomenal. So imagine if you are a big tech company and you have an app store. There are several of them. Uh, and you uh, potentially have a place like, um, I don't know, Vietnam or Laos or somewhere where you have, you know, if not a few million users, of that app store making payments on a regular basis and sometimes getting refunds. The only way for you to move money there and back is via the Swift network, primarily. And you'll have a treasury team inside Big Tech Co that manages the money backwards and forwards. Um, But you don't know how much it's going to cost to send the money there. Uh, You don't know how long it's going to take to get there, or even if it's going to get there. And let's say somebody's bought like a, a $49 cent app so now you've paid potentially a fee upwards of $20, 40 $60 to get 49 cents. And then if they want a refund, you've got to pay $20, 40 $60 to give the refund of that 49 cents. Now, of course, you're going to try and batch all of those transactions together. You're going to try and make it sensible. But the reality that um, there are real problems to solve in payments is, is still very, very pressing.
1: And it's very easy to jump to the conclusion and state or claim that if we can reduce some of those frictions and if we can make payments smoother, even within big corporate ecosystems, then there will be more trade, be more commerce. The truth is, we just don't know. We've not experimented with this
0: before. We're a week away from Cybos, the global um, banking conference built around uh, SWIFT, the interbank you know, sort of payment network, and they always talk about the global uh, GPI initiative, global payment. Uh, initiative i think it is um, and that is an api that sort of at least gives you uh, would compete with the interbank information network on some level but also is complementary to it. it it allows you to at least know where that payment is so it's going to be interesting to watch these these things start to evolve more and more and I and really one, like com- your-
1: one conversation swift has tried to bring to the surface is do we need a blockchain for all of this
0: Which is always the right question to ask. And it depends what problem you solve. Because I I think you were mentioning earlier, uh, the data about the payment has got really interesting. If you look at what's happening in fintech lately, uh, in the past 10 years, I look at Square. They started out fixing a payment problem, but they make their money with a data problem. Uh, So they allow merchants to very easily accept payments. But once they did that, they realized the real problem with merchants, you know, accepting payments is neither here nor there. It's understanding what's selling well. What do I need more stock of? uh, What's going to be important? What do other merchants like me have lots of? uh, How does this change through seasons? Uh, Doing that for a really small merchant is actually really, really hard, and doing that at scale is really, really hard. Uh, So fintech um, has succeeded, and you've seen these massive businesses grow with $10 billion, $20 billion market caps through traditional disruption theory, which has served the unmet need. And when I look at Libra versus uh, where the banks are, the banks are trying to solve their problem for their clients today. They're not solving tomorrow's problem for tomorrow's clients. So it really comes down to, are you trying to fix the roof or are you trying to grow a business?
1: (laughs) I love that analogy.
0: (laughs) Uh, All right, next story comes from Decrypt.co, but again, it was covered in all kinds of places. Um, This one is Vitalik Buterin speaking about privacy, uh, decentralized finance, Ethereum 2.0. Could have picked a bunch of quotes on this one. Um, And of course, this was at the Ethereal, I never know how to say that, Uh, conference in Tel Aviv. Um, So, uh, regarding phase zero of Ethereum 2.0, he said, Everything was finalised except for things that come up during the security audien- audits. So they have a good feel of like what the final scope is. Um, the clients, um, the ETH 2.0 clients, now talk to each other. The next step is to make sure they can maintain a public network at scale. Really, really interesting. ETH 2.0 is a big, big moment for the whole Ethereum community. It's a big shift from ETH
1: 1.0. Will it happen?
0: Right. Uh, that's a good. Well, so. From here, it seems like Vitalik is, is pretty keen that they're, they're on track and that they will get there.
1: And they are making progress, but... What concerns me, and I'm so not an expert in this, but I have colleagues who know 10 times more than I do. What concerns me is the whole concept of trying to change the motor of your car while you're actually on the highway. Mm -hmm. And when you consider how much value has already been built on top of the Ethereum network, there's a lot of risk here, which as an investor I would be concerned about. I'm not an investor, and this is obviously not investment advice, but there are going to be a lot of eyes watching this, a lot of eyes with money behind it watching this.
0: Yeah, I'm just going to try and bring up the rough market cap of Ethereum as we're at press time. Um, but it, I think I imagine it's pretty significant. What am I looking at? I'm sorry, I'm going to Coin Market Cap. I know that people have their challenges with that. But what are we looking at? Two, at least two, 21 billion US dollars. Um, that is a an expensive thing to get wrong for the mm. the people who hold significant portions of that. Although I guess a lot of those are the early founders. Because stepping back, ETH uh, was always uh, Sort of pushed out uh, and intended to move towards something that was uh, scalable and was, you know, Vitalik was always more interested in proof of stake. It wasn't really ready. And Joe Lubin said something really interesting at the Ethereal conference, which was uh, he sees ETH 1.0 almost as a massive, massive proof of concept, hmm. um, with ETH 2.0 being the first real version uh, of the you know, scalable production network that they start to go.
1: And how could you have a proof of concept that's so different from the pilot that you eventually move into?
0: Yeah, it. it well, I mean, this is... Uh, one thing with Ethereum is it's always been wildly ambitious, um, and it continues to be uh, wildly ambitious. But because they are, of course, moving from proof of stake to... Um, Uh, sorry, from proof-of-work to proof-of-stake, which is a different consensus mechanism for for the unfamiliar, Um, there's been uh, a lot of concerns that there's going to be low incentives for the people who actually validate the network, the miners, as it were. And um, there are a lot of people... uh, Vitalik says there's a lot of misconceptions about that. There are people throwing around a 1% statistics, but the reality is the maximum reward is 1.7% per year. And the only case literally where everybody is staking, in that case, a small number of validators are staking, the rewards go up a bit. He also talks about decentralized finance, which I'm sure you've come across as a subject on, on more than one occasion.
1: Absolutely, something I'm fascinated by. Something that's really niche at the moment. I've been focusing until recently on the institutional sector, institutional investors in crypto. I do not see them interested in DeFi, except with a very hardcore crypto uh, corner of that field, because they can't. I mean, they need people to respond. You need centralized validators. You need centralized, you need centralized responsibility. Well. Absolutely.
0: Uh, it's interesting, though, that um, Vitalik, uh, as ever, is very sensible in, in what he says. He says, I'm excited by the potential for, that DeFi offers pe- in principle. The idea that anyone, anywhere in the world, can ac- have access to a system that lets them pay each other, choose their own financial exposure, is a really powerful thing. It's something that a lot of people don't have access to. But he then he also goes on to say, um, but I... I really really caution people from using this. I'm paraphrasing now really really caution people from using this at scale there are a lot of things that can really go wrong mm. so be, be very very cautious how and he, you, he,
1: you know he has said that several times over the course of it, and that's a very wise thing to say and some of his colleagues have said the same thing that doesn't stop the the community though from developing an ethereum and like we can say from that point of view ethereum has already been wildly successful just from the creativity and the experimentation going on on top of it and that's in a way why it's here it's here so that we can experiment with new new models, new forms of governments, new types of finance.
0: What's interesting to me, though, is what you don't see is uh, consumer products. And and Vitalik says, you know, it's too early for that. And rightly, you don't see consumer products at scale in the way that you would with fintech. I'm I'm interested by the fact that uh, Jack Dorsey has started Square Crypto, Um, and is is very interested in Bitcoin and is very interested in new models of governance, new ways of doing payments, new payment networks. Um, But I wonder if we would start to see, could any of this be production and could any of this solve problems for consumers, for businesses um, more broadly? Because the, the scalability issues of the Ethereum network has meant that you, know, you cannot design things the way you would have historically designed things on a centralized technology stack and use Ethereum the way you would. You may be able to use it for some niche use cases, but in nearly every case, a centralized technology stack is is probably better for solving your problem today. But as we get into 2.0, will that change?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. I have another question for you related to all of this. Do you see Ether evolving into a payment token ever?
0: Hmm, I don't know. I don't know. It, it seems to be uh, more broad in its application. I think uh, ETH, uh, a little bit like Bitcoin, represents the value the market perceives of the security of the Ethereum network itself. So it, it has the more of that commodity role. Um, I think the Ethereum network could be used to solve payment problems. But ETH, the currency crypto asset, may not be used as a payment token. I suspect people would develop payment tokens on top of Ethereum and then pay for the use of that network in ETH and gas.
1: Hmm. I wonder how that will affect the development going forward. I mean, as you said, we do have a lot of, um, for instance, Square uh, building on Bitcoin because they do see that as a potential payment token. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, It depends what problem you're trying to solve. I see Bitcoin were trying to solve two problems in once, and there's still two camps sort of splitting. <laughs> they were trying to solve for both digital gold and digital um, peer-to-peer decentralized cash. Yeah. I think Ethereum was trying to build a world computer, which is wildly ambitious, but also governs like the technology choices that you see.
1: It's seriously cool. I mean,
0: yeah, I mean... Mm-hmm. Really, really cool. Like if you want to reimagine the world and start to think about how would you at least in principle and theoretically solve some of the problems the internet has. I mean, it was Mark Andreessen on the A16Z podcast about four or five weeks ago was saying you know, the, the big problem the internet had was they never figured out microtransactions and they got into the, ad, uh, the advertised ad-supported revenue model as a result of not having figured that out. Hmm. So,
1: Do you think Bitcoin can be both?
0: Oof. No, I think it has to pick one. Uh, I think you can only be one of those things, um, hence the forking. Um, and I think it's been better at being digital gold than it has been um, at, at being cash.
1: What about lightning? Would that change the equation? Uh,
0: potentially, but I think you end, up with, um, you end up with this constant problem, which is I've just pushed the problem up a layer. Yeah. So, so now I have all of the decentralization issues that Bitcoin has, but up one layer. Um, So I suspect then the lightning nodes would start to run into scalability issues um, and then very quickly clog the network and then you build a layer on top of that. So it is an interesting question about um, does, does just adding a layer necessarily make you scalable or just move the problem?
1: And the really cool thing is we don't know. We're here to watch and
0: That's what makes it so exciting. Uh, Alrighty, it's time for a quick shill. If you've got any plans on the 23rd or 24th of October, Uh, you can join 11FS at Corticon 2019 in London, one of the top blockchain events in the world, hosted, of course, by our good friends at R3. Um Conan is the once-a-year event, brings more than 800 blockchain leaders, technologists, and Corda developers from various industries around the world for two days of interactive sessions, use case presentations, tech talks, and more. Day one is all about basics, dev tooling, um, and some more advanced concepts uh, on the techie side, security and such like, and biz Day is is industry leaders who will take an in-depth look at major initiatives and use cases. Uh, you can join Dev Day, Biz Day, or both, although registration is F-R-E-E free. Sign up now. Space is limited. Head over to r3.com forward slash cordicon. That's r3.com forward slash cordicon for more information. And I will definitely see you there if you come in. Um, and you might even learn more about what the whole Wells Fargo thing is about. You should uh, you should go learn the use cases. Alrighty, on with the show. Next story comes from coinest.com. Harbor tokenizes real estate funds worth $100 million onto Ethereum. Harbor's pivoted from helping companies issue security tokens to helping them tokenize existing securities. So, this is security tokens versus tokenized securities. Um, Josh Stein, uh, CEO of Harbor, said, Harbour evolved from crowdfunding and tokens to being the salesforce.com of the security token industry. Um, So very much that SaaS model platform play that they're moving to. Justifying the pivot, he added, the overlap between uh, investors demanding tokens and investors, investors interested in security tokens was zero. People were buying tokens, but they weren't buying to invest. They were buying to speculate. Interesting that they've moved towards property. ICO bubble's definitely over.
1: Well, it's been over for a while. It doesn't mean token-based <laughs> financing is over. There's still a lot of interest, as we, as you and I know from the events that we go to, which are populated by people in suits, actually, these days, yep. looking at how to adapt these, their new their business models to this new form of, I guess, representation of value is probably a way of putting it. I don't think real estate is the objective here. I think real estate is an obvious tokenization case, but it's not the story. The story is the tokenization of things that are already part of of investment portfolios. And
0: And illiquid um, parts of investment portfolios that are inefficient and expensive to manage and difficult to gather investors around. So there's the the idea that you could, A, bring liquidity into that market, B, bring efficiency into it um, and change the the capital conversation and build sort of a a crowdfunding around it. So if you would think um, the types of uh, investor that gets access to real estate, typically, uh, you know, if, if somebody's building that fund, if an asset manager is building that fund, they would go to the massive institutions in order to come into that fund. Because trying to go to retail is near impossible. But even trying to go into high net worth, you know, you want people that can move $100 million because you've got to do really detailed due diligence on every single investor. And um, it's just not digital. It's very, very manual. So a lot of this feels more like Um, harbour have pivoted into fintech for um, kind of the asset management space they just happen to use a token behind the scenes the real thing is that platform that people are using to tokenize that asset and to create that secondary market and to create that liquidity around uh, uh, non-alternative assets like real estate but also uh, like um, asset financing or, or whatever else
1: I'm skeptical about the liquidity argument. I hear this a lot. I hear this a lot. And if we tokenize this, we'll get more liquidity. There's no evidence of that whatsoever.
0: Completely agree.
1: And Harbors pivot here. And obviously, I don't claim to have inside knowledge of their business model. And I very much respect the work that they've done in the sector so far. I'm not sure it's a... Total pivot in terms of strategy. I think they are giving their clients what their clients are asking for, which is a very sensible thing to do mm-hmm. on the business front. And what they seem to be saying here is that, you know, we tried to do the really innovative stuff, but our clients aren't ready yet. The market's not ready for that. So we're going to do this fairly safe thing, which is put to real estate on a blockchain I, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to change the liquidity equation. It's of buying real estate funds is not that hard. And we don't have any evidence that the liquidity is what people are looking for when you're buying real estate.
0: No, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think, if anything, real estate may be d- driving yield because there is less liquidity
1: Absolutely. In it. And,
0: you know, so they're two sides of the same sort of equation. Uh, the interesting thing to me, though, is This feels really slap bang in the middle of fintech for cap markets. This is actually taking a process that was analog and moving it all the way to digital all the way down. Because once you have a token, the operations and the management of that asset um, become something that you can start to automate. Because if I had a digital front end for selling you the fund, that's nice and you could build that. You don't need fancy token technology for that. But if you are starting to uh, have a life cycle around that asset and that asset has events, thinking through that workflow and thinking about how that information is spread amongst all of the parties in the fund, that's where things get exciting to me.
1: Indeed, this does sound like baby steps to start with, which is a very good thing to do. I imagine the advantage will be ease of administration, ease of handing over the dividends, etc. It'll come down to a cost saving, which is a big thing to prove. If we can prove that this saves costs, then that's going to get more people issuing. I don't think the investors are going to care that much. But you know I don't really mind if it's on the blockchain or not. And if we take the word blockchain out of the equation, then it yes, it is a fintech thing. And that's going to speak volumes towards the acceptance that we could be moving into.
0: So interestingly, I, I speak to and bump into the asset management space quite a bit. And I see sort of a maybe 10% of the market was like. Tokens, yes. Like, what is it? Can I connect? You have massive interest, especially when it comes to uh, creating efficiency, giving their funds something different to stand out. Um, then there's sort of a, a 25, 30% of the market who is sort of uh, not really interested, to go away. And then there's like a 60%, like if you could show me something that would materially impact my business, mm. then then absolutely. Mm. So if you can take that sort of 10% base and if you can uh, do something really interesting with them, then uh, you know you could prove the case to, to the rest of the market. And it is finished tech, yes, but I think the workflow and the operations, the middle and back office stuff and the life cycle of what happens to the asset in life, that's where the action is to me, is is not just the financing and reducing the cost of doing so. But the types of uh, investor you could bring in from reducing the cost and also from automating a lot of the post-trade and long-after-the-trade lifecycle further reduces your cost, which may, may open you up to a different investor base.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you seem to be moving away from theory to actual proof.
0: And it was Jeremy Miller, I think, over at Consensus for some time, has been talking about convergence thesis. You made a point a moment ago that, um, you know, baby steps. You see the institutions stepping from um, blockchain, not Bitcoin, to, oh tokens. And you see the crypto world stepping from Bitcoin to Bitcoin and Ethereum plus ICOs to, ooh, maybe we can start to do stable coins. And how do you make those regulatory compatible and exchange? The, the two do appear to be on a path towards convergence.
1: It would be awesome if we start to see your real estate token, you could use it to pay for something. I mean, that would be pretty mind-blowing.
0: Oh, that's rock and roll right yeah. there. Let's, uh, let's <laughs> move to the next story, though, because um, this one comes from Coindesk. And uh, there was an author of this one, you, you might know, Noelle. Um, the, the story title is, What Bitcoin's valuation says about its volatility. So what does uh, Bitcoin's valuation say about its volatility?
1: I wrote this article to correct a misperception that I myself have been guilty of that increased liquidity in Bitcoin will mitigate its volatility. I myself have said in the past, it's okay, you know, when funds come in, the volatility will diminish and therefore it'll be more attractive for portfolios, et cetera. But digging a bit deeper and thinking deeply over mass bo- amounts of wine one night, <laughs> I came across the conclusion that actually no, because first of all, liquid- trading volume, which uh, let's face it, it as the acceptance and popularity of Bitcoin as an investment asset, growth. volume does not necessarily imply greater liquidity. I mean, it can do, but it doesn't have to. They're very different concepts. But the volatility of Bitcoin isn't due to the lack of trading volume. It's not due to the lack of liquidity either. It's due to the fundamental nature of the asset and the drivers of its price. Bitcoin does not have fundamental values like other assets, like the real estate we've just been talking about, like equities, etc. It's what is known as a real asset, much like gold. It's something you actually own. Mm -hmm. There are no cash flows um, deriving from it. It's not something that can For certain rights, it's you own it. And because there are no cash flows, it's very hard to value by traditional standards. It's impossible to value by traditional standards. So what drives the Bitcoin price at the moment? It's just the narrative, it's the story, it's the sentiment. And sentiment, as we know. Is fickle and sentiment can turn on a dime, and sentiment is driven by events or not. I mean, there's no way really to predict or control it. And because it's driven by sentiment, which is fickle, the volatility is here to stay for some time to come. And I think we perhaps need to shift our perception of that as being a negative thing. Mm -hmm. We look for volatility for additional yield, and that in this low yield environment is potentially a strong point in favor?
0: I think that investor search for yield has really started to make uh, professional investors look at this space um, much more, especially if you're on a structured products team. Um, there, you know, Historically, a structured product team of an investment bank would and build custom portfolios and custom allocations in things that were a bit stranger uh, that would include these sorts of things that are a bit harder to do. And I would imagine that uh, you know, trying to uh, identify where the yield is and understand those narratives is really, really helpful. So how would one uh, who was trying to understand the price professionally? Look at narratives, and it's it's really interesting. I'm probably aware of Nathaniel Whitmore, NLW on Twitter, has a narratives watch, mm-hmm. and and it's it's probably one of the clearest cases where narrative drives price um, than out, out of almost anything. Uh, and sentiment can be so, so powerful.
1: Totally. I mean, gold also. Gold is another real asset like Bitcoin, and narrative drives mm. gold's price. So there aren't any cash flows with which to value, et cetera, et cetera. But the narrative for gold is more stable. It's been around for millennia. We understand its story. We know what gold is about, more or less. Okay, there may be changes here and there, but we understand gold. Whereas Bitcoin, we still don't know what its story is. We're still figuring that out as we go along. And as Nathaniel and many of, many of our other colleagues in the sector have pointed out, this is an evolving process. I'm fascinated by the data analyses that are emerging in the sector. A lot of very rigorous data firms are mining sentiment data, which is unusual. I mean, this is unique in this asset class Mm -hmm. to have, first of all, access to such data, either through blockchain-based data analysis. We know what kind of movements are going on, and we can judge sentiment from that, or even mining tweets.
0: Yes, Mining tweets for sentiment analysis on um, equities movements has been around for sort of a decade more but the uh the underlying uh, the, the sentiment was typically following some other data indicators that drove the price. Um, and what people believed about those those indicators on cash flows or something else. This is more pure in the sense that sentiment really, really is the only or the macro and the most important thing driving where it goes.
1: And that's one of the most fascinating things about it, to be honest. It's an entirely new asset class. I mean, we say that, but the, d- the deeper you go in this, the more you realise It's an entirely new asset class.
0: And, and I remember first seeing a slide, I think it was the Winklevoss twins did in 2016, 2015. I don't know where they did it at some conference. And they, they sort of, put up, how does Bitcoin compare to cash? How does it compare to equities? How does it compare to gold? And there was no one type of asset class that we understood that it fit inside perfectly. It yeah. had sort of things of all of them. But it is something different. And I think we need to understand that uh, a crypto asset um, that looks and feels like Bitcoin in that sort of broadly a commodity but not quite sort of sense, uh, is is a really powerful thing to get your head around.
1: Yeah, and we do keep trying to fit it into boxes that we already know, and yeah. that's a struggle. I think gold so far seems to be the closest, but even then, not, not quite. Perfect. Not quite. But uh, how do we convince an entire traditional finance field, uh, given how hard it is to change things, how do we convince them to think outside the box and start to realize that you can't package this in previously established concepts?
0: I suspect Bitcoin will not move at the speed of the adoption of uh, Pokemon Go. Uh, anytime <laughs> soon, um, but it. There's more stake too. <laughs> yeah, but but give it a generation and let's see where we are. Uh, alrighty, stories we didn't have time to cover. Uh, first one was from the block uh, OKEX um, Korea delisting all privacy coins, including Monero, Zcash, Dash, as these violate the FATF travel rule. Um, story from VentureBeat: CryptoKitties creator Dapper Labs raises 11 million dollars and unveils Flow blockchain. Uh, the Athletic um story uh, spencer dinwindle to convert his nba contract into a secured digital investment dinwiddie, dinwiddie. i did not yeah I, basketball <laughs> not <laughs> my sport get sorry the
1: program.
0: <laughs> i am as you sorry if you're a basketball fan out there <laughs> but like i don't know i, I don't this know this will
1: affect the podcast ratings you understand
0: yeah to all six people who really love uh <laughs> basketball who also happen Very to listen to this sport. show um uh, if you are a basketball fan and you do love this show, do tweet me at S.Y. Taylor. <laughs> I would love to be wrong um, and be corrected by you. Um, story from Reuters. Skirting U.S. sanctions. Cubans apparently flock to cryptocurrency to shop online and send funds. All right, it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet
1: of
0: the Week. This week's Tweet of the Week comes from John Whelan at uh, underscore John Whelan on Twitter. Um, and he says, people have been asking for uh, the transactions we did to clear and settle the $20 million bond on the Ethereum mainnet. Um, so that was his first tweet, and he goes on to a tweet storm. The context being Santander did a um, bond uh, that they settled on, uh, for $20 million that they settled on the Ethereum mainnet not an ethereum poc not a private version of ethereum but they settled that on the ethereum mainnet which feels like a watershed moment from from a fairly large global bank
1: it's actually a big deal because if indeed it was on the ethereum mainnet and i don't have the details of this but that means a bank was handling ether yes and gas yes a bank was handling cryptocurrencies yes that's pretty big deal
0: it it is um now you know were they handling that under the view that it's like, uh, Fueling your Hmm. Um, car—it's—it's an interesting question.
1: And if indeed they were, I mean, maybe they were just doing the beginning and the end, and the actual handling part was was done done by by a third party. uh, Nivara, I think, was their third-party bank, correctly. It's
0: Nivara, yeah. Um, And you have—you essentially have a service provider handle the Ethereum, but you would uh, manage the clients and underwrite the transactions.
1: Yeah, because that would probably be more palatable to the ECB
0: and the internal compliance team, who are probably as scary, if not more so, than (laughs) the ECB in many cases. Um, Um, So John goes on to give the link to the investor wallet uh, on etherscan.io. And he says, here you can see the tokenized cash in USD that the investor received after transferring the real cash into the custody account. So investor comes along, puts money into a custody account. In return, they get cash tokens on the Ethereum mainnet. Second thing that happened is those US dollar cash tokens are then exchanged for bond tokens, 100 units at $200,000 per unit, um, and then that's the investor side. On the issuer side, uh, he gives the ETH scan address, and he says, here you can see the tokenized U.S. dollar that the issuer received following the investment. So I'm the issuer of the bond, here is me getting my dollar tokens. And then the U.S. dollar tokens are then redeemed from r- for real cash from the custody account. So investor comes along and puts money into a custody account um, from a banking perspective, and then uh, issuer uh, will sort of receive the dollars from that same custody account. So that's what the banking network sees. Outside of that, you're seeing this token switch for, for sort of tracking and tracing what's going on. Uh, really interesting point towards the end as well. John notes that other smart contracts were used too. Uh, a whitelisting smart contract allowing only entities properly KYC'd and onboarded to hold those tokens, bonds or cash, and an exchange contract that acted as the escrow until the issuer accepted the transaction, triggering the atomic delivery versus payment. That's really, really exciting. Essentially, a lot of stuff that banks run around and do, that they check on spreadsheets, that they make phone calls to each other, that they then send swift messages to each other, just got automated in a really transparent and traceable way on the Ethereum mainnet. I think hats off to those guys for doing something that they said couldn't be done. Indeed. All righty. Uh, In some more bank and blockchain DLT news, of course, Russia's largest bank bought $15 million of debt using the Hyperledger blockchain. There's so many stories this week. Um, Noel, what's your takeaway from this week?
1: That products are starting to come to market. I mean, then the next quarter is going to be about products to do with cryptocurrencies and blockchain, not just the enterprise bonds that we're starting to see and the public bonds as well, but also derivatives. We have a lot of derivative launches coming up. We have some new indices emerging. We have some new types of funds that are gaining traction slowly, perhaps, but they're there.
0: This isn't doing what you used to do a bit better. This is doing it a different way on on the technology and, and figuring it. The, the hard yards are being done. And in two, three years' time, I suspect there would be some... You know, my sort of prediction, if you want to call it that, or my gut feel is wind the clock forward another two or three years and we'll suddenly see when did it get normal that this happened <laughs> it sort of yeah it took the last six or seven years yeah, but we, we got linked
1: and we missed that but it is happening fast i mean bear in mind the heyday of 2017 where we had products flying thick and fast was actually just over a year ago it was, yeah. it was not that i mean okay, 2 years ago but it's not that long, long it was really recent in terms of history
0: but you could find yourself in 2021 2022 like oh crap all of my competitors are doing this what am i going to do about it if you're not careful i think if you're sitting in a big bank right now.
1: But the fact is they are now, yes, paying attention, partly because of what else is going on in the sector, but they're doing so carefully. The questions are smarter. The questions are more intelligent. The questions are more focused on what do our clients want, and the questions are also focused on what are the regulators going to insist on, and it feels more careful.
0: I have a funny feeling that uh, our good friends at Libra may go through a similar cycle as well. Um, Just to remind everybody, this podcast is brought to you by 11FS, and we are a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services we create truly digital propositions working with banks big techs and all kinds of companies who want to get the most out of where finance meets customers if you want to hear more blockchain insider every single thursday the subscribe button's right there and just tell some friends we uh we really really love and appreciate all of that all right uh where can people find out more about you Noel?
1: You can follow me on Twitter, which is at Noel in Madrid, which is where I live. Also, subscribe to the Institutional Crypto Newsletter, which you can do so on the Coindesk homepage. It's free. It's weekly. It keeps you up to date with what's going on with the products and the interest and the regulations. And follow Coindesk at Coindesk.com.
0: Heck yeah. Uh, You can find me at sytaylor on Twitter or email me directly, simon at 11fs.com. Big thank you to our amazing production team here at 11FS, producer Petra, Laura and Hannah, and of course, Alex. Our editor. Uh, Thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye for now.